Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Ted Koppel is out with a new book. It's called Lights Out. The longtime Nightline anchor says that we think of the Internet as a positive force, but it can be used as a weapon of mass destruction. He says a well-designed cyber attack on just one of the nation's three electric power grids could be crippling to our national infrastructure and would have to be regarded as nothing less than an act of war. Such an attack could be instantly and anonymously launched from a single laptop anywhere in the world. And he asks, are we prepared? He uh, takes a look at uh, the uh, members of uh, America's so-called prepper movement, estimated at 3 million. He interviews leaders of the Mormon Church, which is unrivaled in its disaster preparedness. And he asks, how will ordinary citizens survive? That's coming uh, in a half an hour. We begin the program looking at uh, potential threats in a different direction. That is theft of our data um, online. And uh, we are going to turn to Gary Steele. He is CEO of Proofpoint. That is a company that uh, is a security as service vendor. It delivers data protection solutions, help protect organizations protect their data from attack, keep malicious content out of their environments, prevent theft or inadvertent loss of sensitive information. And uh, Proofpoint uh, customers comprise uh, more than 50% of the Fortune 100, including the, the top five U.S. banks, three of the top U- five U.S. retailers, four of the top five global pharmaceutical companies. Gary Steele previously was CEO of Portera, an applications company. Uh, he was uh, with uh, the data warehousing product group at Sybase Incorporated, previously with Sun Microsystems and Hewlett-Packard, and he holds a bachelor's degree in computer science from Washington State University. Pleasure to welcome in Gary Steele. Thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. Thank you. Uh, let me uh, spend just a little bit of time on your background. Uh, so you went to Washington State, got into computer science. When was this? I graduated in the mid-'80s, so I graduated in 84, um, got a degree in computer science, and clearly the world has changed significantly since then. Um, we're clearly living in a very different world than when I came out of college. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a whole big shift. You got in kind of at the, uh, you know, the, the, the ground floor there. Uh, and I understand uh, you, you got to uh, Proofpoint, and you were involved. It, it, was, it was pretty much you were employee number five. I was. So I was part of the founding team, so I had the fortunate circumstances to come together with a group of folks that basically laid the foundation for the company. And as you indicated in your intro, we've had great success with some of the biggest organizations in the world, including over half the Fortune 100 and roughly 25% of the Fortune 1000. So we've had great success, and we're really proud of that. So as I understand it, when you got there, you're still developing the product, and, and you or your job was to contact... Uh, people in in these companies and and ask them what they needed. So I wonder, with that as a foundation, what what keeps these CEOs up at night? What what is the worry of these organizations? You know, I think what's fundamentally different today is um, today's bad actors are operating much more aggressively. They're targeting they're targeting individuals and in companies because ultimately that's what's most vulnerable and they target those individuals in a range of ways. They target them through email-led phishing attacks, so spoofing email, trying to get an individual to either click on a link or download an attachment. They target them on social media where organizations have a greater presence where they're trying to communicate to their customers or their broader status constituencies. Or they target them on mobile apps where you know, individuals naively download some application thinking it's going to help them either create fun or create productivity, and in reality it's stealing everything on their phone. 
And so we built a broad platform of capability to help help companies solve the problem of how do you protect your most important asset, which is your people, from these kinds of cyber attacks. So I guess you can have a real robust, uh, you know, IT security infrastructure, protect your hardware and such, but it's the people, I guess, that's always going to be the most vulnerable? Yeah, and I think we all have seen it, right? We've all seen those emails that come in, and it's like, is this real? Is it really from my bank, or is it actually some bad actor trying to get um, my banking information? Or I'm on social, and I'm interacting with someone on social. Is it really the organization that I think that I'm dealing with, or is it actually some hacker that set up some false page that, again, is out trying to steal information? Give me an example of how a, a bad actor would would go about this. So, so you know, we all know. <laughs> I hope we all know, and we can emphasize here in this program that we should be we should be skeptical, right, and of of uh, phishing uh, emails. But but say you didn't do the right thing, and and someone got your data. What what are they going to do with that? So a couple things. So one is the way in which uh, bad actors use phishing is they're doing one of two things typically. One, they're taking you to a website, so you're clicking on a link that's embedded in that email. You're clicking on that link, and you're going to some website that has malware on it. So you land on that page, and something's going to be installed on your computer that's going to um, do a number of things. And one, it, it could steal basically everything on your, on your computer. It could also capture any information that you're entering that would give it credentials to go get banking information or other kinds of, of data. And in companies, it's often common for the, the malicious code to actually steal your network credentials. So how do you get onto the company network? So that's one path. The other path is you clicked on a document, and in that document, it's actually a weaponized document, meaning it has some form of virus in it. And that virus then gets installed on your laptop and does the similar thing. It enables it enables the bad guy to take over your system and steal information from you. Mm. What, what can we look for then? Are there things we can look for to say, hey, that's, you know, this, this is dangerous? Yeah, I mean, there's some, some basic things. So um, to be a better user, you know, being thoughtful about when you open one of those messages that looks suspicious, look at the link that, that is embedded and do a little bit of inspection on it to see if it looks real or not. If you get, for example, if you got an email from your bank and it has an embedded link, you're better off just to go to your browser, open your browser, go to your bank directly as opposed to follow some link that may have some something that just in the um, in just looking at it, you miss. And so the, the safer way is always just open your browser and go to the destination as opposed to click through. And that's a very simple way of avoiding ending up in, on, a, on some form of malicious site. And then if you, and if you receive an attachment that um, looks suspicious, just don't open it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the, the most important critical thing. So in companies in particular today, we see individuals receiving these, quote, weaponized, weaponized attachments. These weaponized attachments can be things like, oh, here's a shipping, here's your invoice, open this invoice, or here's um, some other form of information. Sometimes we'll see weaponized resumes where a hacker will put malicious code in a resume. So there's all kinds of ways, but if it looks suspicious and it just doesn't feel right, you probably shouldn't open it. Uh, in today's environment, uh, I, 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 you know, I'm... So I'm pretty skeptical. I don't want to open any attachment. 
Should I if, should I go that far? I don't know. Unless I unless I, I absolutely know the person. That far. I, I, mean, I think that you have to. I think that a healthy level of skepticism is a very very good thing today, mm-hmm. and it really applies not only in email. It applies to social as well. We're starting to see. Um, many of the bad actors that have been using phishing as their primary tradecraft, they're also now doing more in social. So a good example there is um, most banks today provide support for their customers over social. So you can tweet to your bank, and your bank will then um, support you with the questions you have. What some of the bad actors are doing today is they've actually set up sites that look exactly like the bank, and so the moment that the customer service organization goes offline from the bank, they then respond to the tweets of the customer. So the bad actor basically responds and redirects that individual to a site that looks pretty much the same. Um, but in reality, it's a bad actor who's just getting that um, individual's banking information and going to steal all that banking information. So you have to be a healthy level of skepticism is the right way to approach it. Mm-hmm. So social media, that's, uh, I guess, a new frontier. I guess if people are there, bad actors are going to try to find you there. Absolutely. And so it kind of comes in multiple forms. You know, the, there's examples of um, people setting up these scam sites that look like the actual brand but aren't the brand. Um, the other kinds of things that we see on social media is bad actors posting uh, malicious content on companies' pages. So think about it's, it's almost like email where you'll see, hey, click here. Here's, some inter- here's an interesting link to look at. Um, you know, you should, again, apply a healthy le- level of skepticism to um, what that actually might be. So a lot of the same techniques and tactics that were used for phishing are now simply being applied to social. And so as people begin to use social more in their day-to-day workplace, thinking about it very much in the same way they did with a healthy level of skepticism on email is the right, right approach. What about uh, mobile apps? Uh, I'm, sh- I'm guessing <laughs> bad hackers found a way to uh, do something with apps. They have, and it's sort of, it's sort of interesting, too. I think that um, people naively believe that if they download something from um, a reputable app store that it's going to be fine. And in reality, there's two things going on in the mobile apps world. Sometimes there's malicious code in those applications, and there was um, a pretty widely publicized um, set of apps that had gotten malware in them and that Apple published that on the iTunes store that they had identified those and taken those off. But So there's that category. But then there's another very important category, which is applications that are valid applications. They don't actually have malware in them, but they steal all the data on your phone. So, you know, a game. Um, there's actually a very popular business card reader. So I don't know if... Um, it's a very common application where you can take a picture of a business card, and what that does then is takes all the contact information on that business card and sticks it in your contacts. It's a great productivity app. The problem with that specific application that basically steals everything on your phone and sends it off to servers all around the world. Wow. And so this is yet another place where you need to be very careful in what applications you put on your phone. And there's a few things that an individual can do to be thoughtful about this. So one is before they download something, they should make sure that they're downloading an application from a legitimate company. So look them up on the web before you actually download. It takes just a minute. Just go see if they have a legitimate website. They look like a legitimate company. The second thing is if there is a 
a license agreement or, or privacy policy, so the thing that you have to click through to actually install, you should actually read it and see what it's doing with your information. And it, you just need to scan, and you'll understand whether there's any risk associated with it. And if there's no privacy policy that gets published, there's no click-through, yes, agree here, the likelihood that it's um, not a legit application is pretty high. Um, and so those are the two things that individuals can do when they're thinking about, oh, I found this cool game or I found this cool productivity app. Um, just take one step of caution before actually downloading. Who just joined us, we're talking with Gary Steele. He's CEO of Proofpoint. It's a security as service vendor, delivers data protection solutions to help organizations protect their data from attack, enable them to effectively meet uh, complex and evolving regulatory compliance and data governance mandates. I want to talk a little bit about that as we go along as well. Uh, so they help keep malicious content out of these organizations' environments, prevent theft or inadvertent loss of sensitive information. They work with uh, some big companies, the top five U.S. banks, three of the top five U.S. retailers, four of the top five global pharmaceutical companies, two of the top five U.S. oil companies. We'll talk about that. We're also talking, uh, getting some advice from Gary Steele about what you can do as an individual. He says that uh, in any company, any organization, the people are the most vulnerable points. That's where phishing attacks are going to come, for example. And we do have a question from Brittany in Price, who says, As a millennial, I guess I didn't realize how at risk I am online. Um, um, I'm questioning all my former beliefs, starting with, are Apple products safe? Or does it matter the device? You know, we see... Um we see risk across all devices, whether they are Apple or Android, depending on whether you're using phone, laptop, etc. We do see a, a, a lower set of malicious actors targeting. We see a smaller number of malicious actors targeting Apple products, frankly. Uh, but there was this circumstance um, earlier in the year, or actually about a month ago, where there were there was malware in some number of applications in the iTunes store. Now, Apple moved very quickly. They found it. They, they corrected that. But the one thing that, that you still have to be very cognizant of is you will continue to see bad actors using what are valid applications still to steal information. So you still have to have a level of diligence in what you put on your phone or put on your laptop. And uh, you still need to be very thoughtful about that and defensive about it. Hmm. One thing I worry about, I had an incident uh, a few months ago where it, uh, it after I'd clicked on the, um, uh, on the, forgetting the word, uh, the attachment to my email, I then uh, had reason to believe that maybe it was, uh, you know, a bad attachment. And so I'd, I'd, I double-checked, and I, I thought I was okay, but just to be safe, I changed all my passwords on everything. And, I, you know, I'd, I'd try to do everything I could. I You know, you worry about these things. But then I further worried... What if somebody got some information they just sat on it for a long time? Do, do, should I worry about that? Actually, you do need to worry about that. Um, one of the things that we see, and it's common with the highly publicized breaches, where if you as an individual ever receive a noti notification from somebody that you've done business with and they notify you that your information has been compromised because they got breached, you should not assume that if it was if you saw no issues with your credit history or any of those things over the course of the first couple months that you're safe, because oftentimes um, months or even years will go by and then bad actors will go leverage that information in some way, sell it, um, exploit it. So you, you need to be thoughtful over a long period of time. It's not a short period where bad guys basically use that data.
You can buy almost anything in the black market today, which is frankly frightening. Yeah, it is frightening. Yeah. Uh, so did, did I do the right thing? Was there other things I could have done? I, uh, well, I thought you should run, my passwords. You should run like, whatever anti, you should get antivirus okay. and put it on your system and, and okay. see if there's a known virus there. That's All right. the other action that you could take. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, and I did that as well. That yeah, so that's helpful. I guess you do. If it doesn't find anything, you should do that several times over the course of a week because sometimes there are new viruses that the antivirus vendors don't catch, and sometimes it takes some period of time for the virus that you may have gotten to show up as something that the antivirus vendors can detect. Mm-hmm. I want to uh, talk a little bit here. We just a few minutes left here. Talk about the the the, the big companies you work with. Uh, you know, really big companies. Um, and this can really affect value, right? It really affect your business. If you're if you're the victim of a, you know, a data security breach, customers may hesitate to, to come back to you. It's we're all vulnerable. So that, that's that's what you're doing, right? You're helping them to stay more secure. That's right. And I think that more so than ever, there's a level of broad concern and paranoia from organizations, frankly, of all sizes across every vertical today. Because I think there's a common understanding that if you have a significant breach, it's probably the fastest way to destroy shareholder value. And because it effectively you've damaged the brand, customers won't have confidence in doing business with you because you lost their information. And so there's a, there's a very high focus today on the part of security organizations and large companies to rebuild their security posture to leverage modern technologies that enable them to better defend themselves against today's attacks. And where we've benefited from this rebuilding of infrastructures, organizations, large organizations are looking to companies like Proofpoint to help them think about what is really vulnerable, which is their people, which are oftentimes where the attacks are coming in. If you go back to many of the highly publicized breaches that we've seen in the headlines, uh, many of those started with some form of fish message because, again, that's the vulnerability that exists in an organization. Uh, so uh, you, uh, you help companies, I'm reading here, um, to, uh, for compliance. Um, and, and there are you know, a growing number of regulations, I expect, with, with this. I don't know if that helps or hinders. Uh, there's going to be companies like yours that, that help out. Governments get, invo- get involved, and there's you know, arguments about how much or how little. Um, so, uh, Absolutely. I, so I think that the one thing we, we have started to see, and you have various laws across um, the 50 states, but there's a growing number of laws, mostly at the state level, that force organizations to take action as it relates to how they manage private data. So private data meaning um, my personal information, my credit card information, any kind of health-related information, how that data gets handled. And so that those laws fall into the compliance requirements that organizations have to deal with. Um, I think it is likely that as, you know, given the, the threat landscape that we're seeing today, there's a higher likelihood that we see more legislative activity in this particular area because the broad consumer concern that exists today. And I think the tricky thing, frankly, is it's very hard to legislate security um, because the by the time a law gets put in place, if you're legislating a specific technical approach or something like that, 
you know, the bad guys will have moved on to something else. And so I think it's, it's a tricky area. Um, I do think we'll see more movement on the part of Congress to figure out is there more that they can do to protect the consumer from, you know, if, if someone's holding that data, um, what is the responsibility of the organization holding it? You know, and it's sort of interesting to contrast what's gone on in the United States with Europe. Uh, for In Europe, for example, there are no breach notification laws. So what that simply means is that if a company has your credit card information and they get breached and they get stolen, they don't actually have to tell you, which is amazing to me. And in the U.S., one of the good things is you have to, you have to own up to what happened in your environment. So you as a consumer then can make a decision, do you want to do business with that company? Um, and so there's various states of, of, of um, laws and legislative activity across this. But it, because of the broad concern of consumers today, I think there will be more discussion about it. I think it'll be more in the news, and there will be more work to figure out what's the right way to protect the consumer. I just want to back up and underline that. Um, so in Europe, you may never know that uh, the company you're doing business with had a data breach. That's exactly right. Wow. Which is just amazing to me. Yeah. It's just amazing. So yeah. that is changing. So there is a broader... European Union directive that is uh, that will drive that change, but it's in it's in more than a year mm-hmm. from now. And the various states across the U.S. have differing forms of breach notification, but they pretty much exist everywhere. And so, and I think there's a level. I think that does force a level of accountability for a company um, that doesn't create these massive compliance concerns, but it does create at least notification to the consumer who ultimately is going to be affected by what happened with that data breach. Mm. Now there's, uh, I assume there's always an arms race, you know, that you you get better as a as company and, and doing security, and then the bad actors find some new way. Uh, your social media, I guess, the new frontier. The, anything else uh, frontier out there that we need to worry about? I guess. Well, I think that you know what we see is that the tactics continue to move, and you know one of the elements that that we fundamentally believe in is a high rate of innovation. So we're spending roughly 20 cents of every revenue dollar on R&D because we know we need to be sprinting at all times. Um, But to your point, I think that the areas that the bad actors move will continue to change. And I don't know that we can even fully anticipate those. Tactics change, frankly, on a day-to-day basis. We have a big group of threat researchers that operate across the globe watching what the bad actors are doing and being and helping us then uh, formulate strategies for how we can best defend our customers, uh, but it's it's definitely a, uh, an arms race, and I think we'll continue to see a very fast pace of change. Well, we've reached the end of our discussion. Uh, Gary Steele, the CEO of Proofpoint, we'll be talking about uh, data security, and uh, Proofpoint is uh, working with a lot of large companies in helping them to keep our data secure. Gary Steele, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Tom. Really appreciate it. Uh, After break, we will come back with uh, longtime Nightline anchor Ted Koppel. He has a very interesting new book out. It's called Lights Out, A Cyber Attack, A Nation Unprepared, Surviving the Aftermath. Stay tuned. This is Management Minute by Professor Scott Hammond. If you're asking yourself why your customer isn't buying your product or service, then maybe you don't know your customer. Excellent companies have regular dialogues with their customer. Customer relationships and service should be a part of every employee's responsibility. 
For example, a hospital system recently trained its housekeeping staff, the people who clean the patients' rooms, on how to better listen to patients because they're there with the patient. Your value is defined by your customers, not your marketing people or strategic planners. Customers tell us why they buy, and we just have to listen. Create excellence in your company by really listening to your customers and knowing how to bring value to them. The Management Minute is brought to you by our members and the USU Shingo MBA program at the John M. Huntsman School of Business, a 15-month graduate degree for executives giving knowledge and skills to leverage the principles and tools of lean continuous improvement. Huntsman.usu.edu. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Imagine a blackout lasting not days, but weeks or months. Tens of millions of people over several states are affected. For those without access to a generator, there's no running water, no sewage, no refrigeration or light. Food and medical supplies are dwindling. Devices we rely on have gone dark. Banks no longer function. Looting is widespread. Law and order being tested as never before. Ted Koppel says, we think of the Internet as a positive force, but it can also be used as a weapon of mass destruction. A well-designed cyber attack on just one of the nation's three electric power grids could be crippling to our national infrastructure and would have to be regarded as nothing less than an act of war. Of course, we know Ted Koppel is a longtime Nightline anchor. He's author of several books, the latest, very interesting book called Lights Out, A Cyber Attack, Nation Unprepared, Surviving the Aftermath. Ted Koppel, thanks for joining us. Well, I'm glad to be with you. So how did you uh, how did you come upon this topic uh, to, to write about? I almost have to turn the question around on you, Tom, and say how come nobody else came across it? Because the president's been warning about it in two successive State of the Union addresses. The former Secretary of Defense, Leon Panetta, spoke about the danger of a cyber Pearl Harbor. Janet Napolitano, who was the <laughs> Secretary of Homeland Security for almost five years, uh, gave a farewell speech at the National Press Club in which he warned about the danger of a cyber attack on the power grid, uh, and nobody paid any attention. And uh, I heard those. I heard those warnings. Uh, I looked at what these national leaders were saying. And I asked myself, if this is true, then we ought to be paying a little more attention to it. Uh, And after that, I asked myself, if indeed our leaders say it is true, then what preparations have they made and what preparations has the federal government made uh, to deal with the aftermath of such an attack? And I feared that the answer would be not much. And I believe you found the, the that was the answer, not, not very prepared. Actually, the answer is the answer is not quite that encouraging. Uh, we have all kinds of plans for every possible natural disaster, ranging from earthquakes to floods and uh, snowstorms and hurricanes. But basically, there we're talking, with the exception of earthquakes, I suppose, there we're talking uh, about disasters the aftermath of which would be limited both in terms of time and in terms of the region covered. Uh, With a cyber attack on the power grid, you might be talking about uh, an area covering tens of millions of people. And it seems like FEMA and Homeland Security are both pointing the finger at each other, kind of assuming the other one will do the job. 
Not entirely. I mean, um, FEMA is the federal emergency agency. Its parent organization is, in fact, the Department of Homeland Security. So it's not a question of, of one pointing a finger at the other. Uh, in, in point of fact, FEMA would have the initial responsibility of responding and Craig Fugate, who is the administrator of FEMA, uh, is probably among the most competent people in the country to deal with something like that. Um, but he can only he can only play the cards that he's been dealt. Uh, and his boss, who is the Secretary of Homeland Security, Jay Johnson, uh, while acknowledging that this is a real danger and that the likelihood of such an attack is high, um, I don't think has really invested himself yet in, in thinking about what the consequences would be. And when I asked him what the plan is, uh, quite simply, he doesn't, he doesn't know. Uh, he, he sort of pointed up uh, to a shelf behind him with a number of white binders and said, I'm sure there's a plan up there somewhere. Yeah, not, not entirely encouraging. Um, so such an attack, as I understand it, could be anonymously launched from a laptop. Well, the danger of the of the internet in this respect, and again, I'm I'm the first to acknowledge that the internet has a million positive applications, but also the internet was never designed to be defended. It was designed uh, as a senior intelligence officer in the army told me it was designed so that professors could exchange good ideas. Uh, when something is initially not designed to be defended, and when the Internet was first created, I don't think anybody even imagined such a thing as hacking or, or knew what hacking would be. So we're in the difficult position of having this, this wonderful tool that has grown and grown and grown until it covers uh, really every country in the world, and billions of people are using it, but to try and impose on that now, after the fact, a totally successful, uh, totally impermeable uh, defense mechanism is all but impossible. I think we don't think about uh, how ubiquitous electricity is in our lives. And as I was going through some of the scenarios, very possible scenarios in the book, should we have, have such an attack... I was I was surprised to think through those things. I wonder if you could take us through a scenario uh, if if one of the major three grids was attacked. Well, if one of the major three grids was attacked, let's say for the sake of argument that it's it's not even all of the eastern the the three grids are the eastern interconnect which covers all of the east coast and west beyond Chicago. Then Texas has its own grid, and the west coast has its own grid. Um, so theoretically, if someone were to take out the entire eastern interconnect, that would be a massive, massive undertaking. I don't want to leave anyone with the impression that I think this is easy or that anyone could just do it very simply or very quickly. It would take years of planning. It would take years of mapping the, the internal structure of the, of the power grid. Uh, but just so you understand, both the Chinese and the Russians are believed by our intelligence experts to be inside the grid already. 
and they could very simply with quite uh, literally just touching a key on a laptop uh, they could bring down all or part of the grid it's not likely that they will the chinese and the russians have too many interlocking interests with us uh, but I'll come back to this point in a moment. You asked about what the impact would be. Imagine just a city like New York, 8 million people. The entire state of New York, which does have emergency preparedness uh, goods, it does have the food to supply millions of people. It has 25 million MREs. Those are the military's meals ready to eat. There are also civilian versions of that. But do the math. New York City alone, with its five boroughs, has eight million people. You divide eight into 25 million, you get essentially three meals for each person. That takes care of the first three days of a disaster that, as I say, can last weeks or even months. Uh, there is no preparation to come up with the necessary food to feed those people. But what is it that happens in even in the first few days of the electric power going out? No lights, no heat in the winter, no cooling in the summer, no refrigeration. The water in large apartment buildings ceases to flow because it requires pumps, and the pumps require electricity. Without water, you can't flush your toilet. Uh, so within a matter of two or three days, you have a massive health crisis in that human waste cannot be disposed of. Those are just a few. And then, of course, I mean, the notion of your your iPhone going out, your, your not being able to telephone, not being able to cash a check, not being able to go with a credit card anywhere. Um, these are just a few. You can imagine your own uh, little subsets of crises here. Uh, we would be thrust essentially back into the middle of the 19th century without any of the skills that our forefathers had uh, that enabled them to deal with life as it was back then. Uh, so I'd, I'd, maybe skipping ahead, just but I want to come back to uh, you know the so-called uh, prepper community and uh, talk about the LDS Church, which has plans in place. But we're talking about uh, just you know ordinary citizen. What what should we be doing to prepare? Well, I think the first thing, uh, quite frankly, that we need to be doing at this time is to is to discuss it, is to make it part of a national conversation. Uh, I think it's fair to say that, at this point at least, this is not a partisan issue. This is not something that should separate that should separate conservatives from liberals or Democrats from Republicans. I am sure there are aspects of it, the conflict between uh, privacy and security, for example, that will raise some partisan hackles. But as far as the survival question is concerned, as far as what we would do in the aftermath of an attack like this, um, there should not be any partisanship about it. This needs to become a part of the national dialogue, and since we are right now just at the beginning, I know it's hard to believe, but we are still just at the beginning of the presidential campaign. I think it's something that needs to come up in the presidential camp campaign. I'd like at least to know that our candidates for president are thinking about this and asking some of their advisors and experts for their best opinion of what to do or what is a perfectly legitimate point of view to have 
if there are people, uh, candidates out there who believe that this is not worth worrying about, that it's not going to happen, um, then say so. But I must tell you, I've spent the past year and a half uh, researching this, writing about it, talking to the best experts I can find. And while, yes, I have run into experts who think that it will not happen, the vast preponderance of expertise is on the side of saying they think it will. Uh, and I've come to the conclusion that they, that they are right. And uh, you, you, I was reading an interview here. You, you, uh, you went back to your early childhood. You talked about uh, you were in London in World War II, and uh, the, the, the the eventuality, the scenario that uh, people were preparing for. One of those was poison gas attack. That never happened. But you go on to say there's a value in searching for answers, being prepared for whatever scenario. Exactly. I think there is a value in in creating the sort of networks that can exist in a society that is anticipating disaster. And quite frankly, whether it is the disaster that, that, that I outline in Lights Out or whether it's something totally different, um, there is nothing negative that I can think of um, that, that uh, flows out of a community getting closer together getting to know each other a little better, understanding the different levels of expertise that different people uh, in a neighborhood or in, in an affinity group or a religious group have that draws them closer together. And, and what I did see, and I was a very, very young child at the time, but what I remember seeing in England in the 1940s uh, was that people were prepared for disaster. And even, as you say, when the disaster that came is not the disaster they expected. There really was an expectation that Hitler would drop poison gas on England during the war. Um, for reasons we still don't know, he never did. But the fact that people were prepared, the fact that people went through the motions of more than the motions, more than a million people were evacuated from London alone uh, in anticipation of what might happen. Uh, what did happen ultimately is that even with the bombing of London, more than half of those million people came back and preferred to withstand the bombing attacks to being out there where they felt they really were not all that welcome. It's one of the issues that I think we have to confront, one of the issues we need to talk about, one of the issues uh, where we need to make plans, and that is the notion that Hundreds of thousands of American refugees could simply move from one state to another and that they would, A, be welcome, and B, that that state would necessarily have the infrastructure and the wherewithal to support that many refugees. These are assumptions we cannot and should not make. Uh, we need to plan. We need to anticipate. If you just joined us, we're talking with uh, Ted Koppel. His uh, new book is Lights Out, A Cyber Attack, A Nation Unprepared, Surviving the Aftermath. We're talking about potential attack on our electric power grid and uh, what would result from that and how, how should we be more prepared for that. You can join us here at 1-800-826-1495 or by email to upraxcess at gmail.com. There is a very interesting seen in the book, you, you go back to the 1950s, talk about it, and there was a, a planned evacuation, I guess a, a, an emergency drill, and I think it was Binghamton, New York, uh, 
Yes. Um, where essentially the whole population of a certain section of the city went several miles. This was all planned. And you talked about how, uh, looking back, people think, oh, you know, people, planners in the Cold War era were naive. You, and you talked to an official who said, no, they weren't naive. There were some good things that happened from those drills and uh, sent a message. Well, it sent, it sent a message to the Soviets at that time that we were anticipating the possibility of a nuclear attack and that we were prepared for a nuclear attack. Uh, and the message that our leaders at that time were trying to send to the Soviets is, do not think about invading Europe, because we stand ready to defend Western Europe, uh, and we understand that the consequences of that might be a nuclear attack, but we can handle that. Bottom line was, it was sheer bluff. Uh, it was total nonsense. We were no more capable of withstanding a nuclear attack than the Soviets were, but that ultimately after years of both sides building shelters, making plans for evacuations. After years of doing that, both sides then came to the conclusion, you know, none of that is going to work. And ultimately, we settled on this, this strategy that has the intriguing acronym of MAD, Mutual Assured Destruction. The notion that even if you hit us first or we hit you first, you're going to be able to respond we're going to be able to respond, and the result would be tens of millions, if not more, dead. And because of that realization, because we had gone through the motions of trying to prepare for something that we ultimately both realized wouldn't work, we've come to what is a fundamentally a balance of terror between the Soviet Union and now Russia and the United States, which has kept us in some kind of balance of, if not peace, at least a balance of non-war. Mm. That has value of its own. Mm. Now, one of the scenarios here is, is mass evacuations, right? People, people just try to flee the city, uh, searching for, I guess, uh, supplies uh, elsewhere, and uh, then, you know, states that aren't affected and get an influx of people. It'd be, I guess, similar to the refugee crisis now. Uh, some states wouldn't want these people. Move them along. Exactly. I mean, while what's happening in Europe is, is appreciably different in the sense that the people who are coming in are coming in from a totally different culture, from another nation, uh, now in the wake of what happened in Paris, uh, there is even more suspicion of, of any Muslim who comes uh, into any other, in, into any European country. But the fact of the matter is that people in the final analysis, are not that open to the idea of taking in large numbers. I'm talking about hundreds of thousands of evacuees. Imagine if New York had to be evacuated. Uh, the people that I've talked to, and interestingly enough, the two top people at FEMA, at the Federal Emergency Agency, the number two man is a uh, retired Coast Guard Vice Admiral. He believes that in the event of a massive cyber attack on the power grid, uh, that the only way to deal with all those people in New York is to evacuate them. 
when I said, you know, six, seven, eight million people, where are you going to put them? Uh, he just said, well, you know, you haven't given me much of an option. There's not enough to take care of them. So what option do we have but to evacuate them? When I talked to his boss, the administrator of FEMA, and said, what do you do in the event of a massive cyber attack on New York, let's say? Can you evacuate those people? He said, absolutely not. Far too many. What are you talking about? You know, eight million people, you can't evacuate that many people. So one of the one of the the issues that we have to deal with and that I hope we can deal with in anticipation of the possibility or even the likelihood that something like this will happen, these are the kind of conversations that need to be had beforehand. Mm. If the two top people at FEMA can't agree A on the likelihood that this will happen, and B, on what to do if it does, we got a problem. You devote three chapters to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Of course, we're very familiar with the church here in Utah. Uh, tell us what you learned, what we should learn from the LDS Church on emergency preparedness. Well, the LDS Church, is, as your listeners out there in Utah know far better than I, has a long history of having been shoved from pillar to post and having to deal with with one crisis after another over much of the last 200 years. Um, so this is, there is a, there is a mindset, a mentality, a discipline within the LDS Church that would stand them in very good stead in the event that something that I describe something like this were to happen. The fact that that many Mormons indeed have a food supply and a water supply of three months or more uh, is going to be very helpful. There has been planning from the ground up. There has also been enormous planning from the top down so that the church um, could probably be, at least as far as its own membership is concerned, self-sufficient for anywhere from six to 12 months. The church owns huge tracts of farmland uh, where it produces uh, not only goods for human consumption, uh, but the wherewithal to maintain thousands upon thousands of cattle and heifers uh, so that there is a dairy supply, there is a meat supply. You have the uh, LDS has its own trucking company, the Deseret uh, Trucking Company. Um, it has enormous storehouses filled uh, with all kinds of products. Uh, and I'm not suggesting that it is an example to the rest of the country in that anybody can make anything like this happen in short order. It has taken years for the church uh, to prepare itself to this degree. But I am saying that the example that Mormons set in terms of at least having their, their own food supply and water supply on hand, and at least having discussed issues like this. And I know that many Mormon families will meet on a Monday evening and, and have conversations about issues of, of common interest and issues of importance that they might have to deal with at some point. That's a very good example. That's something that other people of other religions could adopt without there being any conflict between or among religions. Mm -hmm. Just a couple minutes left. Um, I'm wondering, and this is maybe a question you could anticipate, uh, going through this, doing this reporting, learning all these things, are 
you personally made some changes and some emergency preparedness things? Yeah. Um, as I've, as I've uh, mentioned in a number of interviews, uh, I did feel that uh, my kids and grandkids needed to be prepared, and I made sure that they that uh, each each family has at least a two or three month supply of freeze dried food and have urged them to get their own supply of water and and to be at least prepared on that level uh, if you can make it through the first couple of months uh, chances are that there will be something that can be done thereafter if you can't make it through the first week you're in trouble are you hopeful this conversation can get started? You're, you're right at the beginning of the program. I think we don't think about these things. Well, the only thing I would add to, to you know what we've already discussed is take a look at what happened in Paris and realize that the people who launched that attack are becoming more and more cyber adept day by day, week by week, month by month. They have a large amount of money. They have captured oil fields. They sell that oil. They have taken people hostage. They have ransomed them. They have stolen tons upon tons of absolutely valuable antiquities, which they sell. They're estimated to have about $2 billion of their own. With $2 billion, you can buy some expertise out there. And if a group like ISIS were to gain the the cyber capability of launching an attack similar to the one I've described, even if it's not as big, think about the consequences of that. There are no inhibitions. If the Chinese are inhibited, the North Koreans, for example, are not. And ISIS certainly is not. So as we move into greater and greater cyber capability among individual groups like ISIS, the danger becomes far greater. Well, we've been talking with Ted Koppel, his latest book, Lights Out. And uh, thank you so much. Appreciate you taking the time to be with us. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye now. Commentator Gina Wickwar. It's something a lot of organizations appear to be facing these days, growing smaller. Large member volunteer groups that give service or provide focus to those wanting to share their love of culture, literature, travel, or adventure seem to be going the way of the landline. Or that's what we think. We may see some groups plateauing, but another force is at work that's keeping them alive. That's because they're turning into a different animal. Take Oz. Yes, you heard me. Oz. I've been a member of the International Wizard of Oz Club for 50 years. The organization is 60 years old next year. I know it does sound a bit loony, but large numbers of people love everything Oz. The readers of Baum's books and their sequels, the committed book collectors, illustration aficionados, kitsch and memorabilia fans, the millions who've watched the MGM classic Untold Times, the legions who adore Return to Oz, The Wiz, Wicked, or Oz the Great and Powerful. Lots of these people are my age. They came into the Oz Club when they were in their early teens, when they nagged their parents to bring them to the gatherings of Oz fans that were held yearly in different parts of the country. Many have been going on to an Oz event every year of their lives.
I just returned from the Western OzCon in Portland, Oregon. For years, it was held in Asilomar near Monterey, California. Then it moved to San Diego, and now it's up in the Pacific Northwest. Our OzCon has lured up to 400 conventioneers, but a few years ago, we noticed participation had started to slowly diminish. Oh, there were still 100 to 150 folks, but they were largely graybeards. Where were the young kids who'd saved their allowance to go to Oz like we had? Why wasn't Oz attracting them anymore? Well, it was, but it was doing it in a way that most of us, even the computer literate, missed as it slipped under the radar. Oz was very much alive, growing and bringing happiness everywhere. It was just doing it the modern way, spreading the fun and camaraderie on websites, links, blogs, Facebook, Twitter, print media, and POD books, self-published pieces written by Oz author wannabes, many of whom were really talented. But now we're starting to see an even newer trend. Those electronic Ozophiles are slowly returning to the fold, sneaking back through the Oz portal from the land of PCs and laptops and iPhones. They become hungry for eye-to-eye contact with other yellow brick road fellow travelers, so they've started returning to the real world of OzCons. Sitting in front of the flickering screen is no doubt fun, but it can get pretty lonely out there in ether space. What's needed, the younger Oz lovers are learning, is the shared, deep friendship we feel when we all get together, hearing the stories, telling the tales, sharing the history, being with those who love Oz as much as we do. And that sure did show up in Portland last weekend. Tons of younger Oz Club members were there, in person. Oh yes, they had iPhones in hands and laptops on laps, but they were in the audience listening and cheering and laughing and enjoying real words from real people and loving it. Other groups will start to see this trend too, I know. So when we think we're seeing a declining participation in groups and organizations that once were the bedrock of America's society, we're not. It's out there, clicking and tapping away, and will eventually come back home. Because, you know, there is no place like home. This is Gina Wickwar.